A poet once wrote, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. The world is not God. It is God's creation, but God's fingerprints are all over it. God's fingerprints on this creation are everywhere. And if you were to go to an art museum, and you were to walk through this art museum and see all the displays of the art, and you were to leave that art museum and say, I don't believe in artists. There would be something wrong with you. And the same way we live in this world of God's craftsmanship, God's uh, art, what he has made, the natural reaction that we are wired rightly to believe is to look at this and say, there is a creator. This is not here by accident. There is a creator. There is a great, powerful, wise craftsman that has made this all. And we are to recognize that and bow to him and give him the glory. So, in the book of Genesis, we're starting that. In the very first verse of Genesis, we do see this truth that God created all things. God created all things. Let's read uh, Genesis 1. We're going to read the whole thing together. And then what we're going to do today, it's going to be a little bit different than uh, Next week, well, what we're going to do next week is we're going to walk through this passage, walk through the six days of creation, and think of some of the kind of the nuts and bolts, some of the deeper questions, what's happening here, what was uh, created on each day, how does this work? But what I want us to do uh, today, before we get into that, so we don't lose uh, the big issue in the, in the details, is to read through this and then to spend the rest of our time just standing in awe of what God has made. To think about just some examples of his creation, some that show his power, and some things that show his, his wisdom and his skill, the design of this world, these things that point to him. And so next week we'll be going back again and looking through this in a, in a different way. But I still want to read it. This account of God's, from God to us of the creation of everything that exists. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which 
is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be and let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to the beasts of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has br the breath of life, I have given green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so we're going to look at some examples from this. Some of the things that, that God has made and just to take some time to just to ponder, to think about these things that God created when he created the, the heavens and the earth. So we'll divide this into two parts. And the first part of this message, here's what I'd like to do, is uh, to make this point that the world that God created is magnificent beyond comparison. And just, again, just looking at a few examples, we could go on forever and ever and ever with examples looking at this. And I'll just give you the outline a little bit ahead of time. It's, we're going to look at some things that are mysterious. I'll give you an example, at least from each. Majestic and massive and God's creation. And in application, we're going to see, remember, this is not ultimately about creation. If we come away from this thinking, oh, those are great mountains, uh, we've missed the point. The point is that the, the artist that made these is magnificent. 
And these are things that, among others, show the incredible power of God that is on display. I mean, in order to make something, you need to be more powerful. You need to be beyond what is made. And when we look and we try to wrap our minds around what God has made, I say try to. I mean that because we cannot fully comprehend, actually we can't even come close to really comprehending the scope of the massiveness of everything that God has made. So that, let's, let's start at the beginning here. I mean, God creates the, the heavens and the earth, and then on day one, it talks about the first thing that God made. It talks about light. And just thinking about light and how mysterious light is. Now, on one hand, you say, well, I know about light. I see it a lot. Uh, you realize light is really technically the only thing that you ever see? Uh, it is. It's the photons that are hitting your eyeballs, and that's what you see. It's bouncing off other things. You don't actually see me right now. You're seeing you know, bits of light that are bouncing off of me, hitting your eyes, and uh, it, your brain tells you, here I am. Uh, that's how these senses work. But if we didn't have light, that wouldn't be happening. But light is mysterious. Light is weird. And maybe some of you remember it from, from physics and maybe some of you read books or some of you are maybe really into this and know uh, way more than me as far as how this works. But I don't think anyone totally understands this. Just the fact that light is both a, it's a particle and a wave at the same time, uh, I think scientists don't really understand still how that works. It is a particle. It doesn't have any mass. And so it's, it's a beam, but we really don't know how this ultimately works. White light can hit a prism and be split into three different colors. Now some of these, these are basic light facts, but you know, we're so accustomed to it. But just think about, this is the first thing that God made and just how important this is and how just mysterious and strange this is and we take it for granted every day. Light is also crazy fast. Now there's things that we think are fast, you think of a, a cheetah being fast, and a cheetah sprinting maybe can do 60 to 80 miles per hour. And that's pretty fast for an animal. Uh, there are some cars that are very fast. A Bugatti Chiron can do over 300 miles per hour. Okay, that's pretty fast. That's faster than a cheetah. It's going to win that race. Not as fast as the space shuttle. Space shuttle, like 17 and a half thousand miles per hour. I mean, that's, that's ridiculously, it's, it's lapping the, the earth faster than we're spinning uh, in the earth. Light, however, 671 million miles per hour. It is booking. <laughs> and the light that you see from the sun, actually, the sun is 93 million miles away, uh, but it is able to get here in a little over eight minutes, because that's how fast it is going. When you see the moonlight, you're actually seeing light that is from the sun reflecting off of the moon, and you're actually seeing the moon as it existed 1.3 seconds ago. So you always have to wait that little bit to find out if the moon has blown up. Okay, but you don't have to wait that long. 1.3 seconds, oh good, it's still there. Uh, but there's a, there's a little bit of a time delay, there's a lag, but from the moon, all the way to here, the light gets here that quickly. To go around the earth, this is the one that uh, just gets me, from the equator, so like, you know, not just like at the North Pole, some little tiny bit, but all the way around at the equator, light, traveling at the speed of light, can circle the earth almost seven and a half times each second. 1,001. That is nuts. 
So God created light. It is mysterious. It is fast. And wow, it is really, really useful. Being able to see is a great thing. Plants, being able to get food from it for photosynthesis, to have the, the start of the, the food chain. And we saw that in Genesis, you know, plants being given for food and everything deriving from this. It doesn't work if you, if you don't have light. You take away light, things go really bad. And light is just part of, there's light that we see, and that's the stuff we take you know, for granted and it's especially useful, but there's all kinds of light, if you want to so call it that, that, that we can't see. You know, there's a whole spectrum. There's a whole electromagnetic uh, spectrum here. We see a little part of it, and at the ends it goes to ultraviolet and infrared. You have microwaves, uh, helpful for those, you know, burritos. Uh, everything from radio waves, x-rays. Uh, there's this whole gigantic spectrum, and our eyes are able to tune in and part of this. And I wonder, you know, just when we talk about God creating light, uh, you know, along with this, I think, you know, this whole you know, electromagnetic spectrum, I think, coming into being, God's setting this up, you know, the, the energy in the world that is going to be needed. And light, it's, it's foundational just for all of reality. You know, Einstein figured out, you know, his uh, theory, E equals mc squared. The energy equals uh, mass uh, times uh, the speed of light squared. And I'm not going to try and explain that to you what it all means, but it means that energy and mass and the speed of light are all tied together. You change one of these, you're changing everything else. And it is amazing. There's other stuff too that we just don't have time to, that light, and I don't know if anyone can really picture how this works, that light, the speed at which light uh, propagates, that leaves at least in a vacuum, is independent of the motion of the wave source. That means most things, like if you were in a car and you're driving and you throw a, you know, a baseball, it's whatever you throw it plus, you know, the uh, bit that you're going. But light is different than that. It just is always going the speed of light. So it is, it is this mysterious thing. God has created this. And just one thing is just wrap our mind around. God has created things that are mysterious. I think it's good to just be humble with that. There's so much we don't really understand and think we got our mind wrapped around all this. The thing that we see the most and we really don't quite get what it is. That should remind us too, when we think about God himself, we think, oh, I don't understand, how can God be three in one? Yeah, we don't even have light figured out, okay? And so let's be humble. There's some things that we know work, we know it's true, but we just, we don't get it. So there's things that are in this creation showing God's power because they're, they're mysterious, they're, they're complicated, and there's some things that uh, are just magnificent. Some things that we see in this world, in God's creation, uh, there's beauty, uh, there's beauty in your backyard, there's beauty you know, in uh, the great state of Michigan as we travel this world. And I hope that some of you have you know, taken some time to, to go to travel and to, to see some of these things. Because I could talk about them, but so many things you need to see to take this in and appreciate the creator that made these things. So I was thinking about this from some examples, and I thought, well, rather than just you know, go online and just pick out some random things, I'll go through some of our photos and pictures that I took. Not that I get the credit, because I didn't make them, I just took pictures. Uh, but some of these things, to think about just the greatness and, and vastness and beauty. Uh, this is Yellowstone, uh, Yellowstone National Park, and there's so many great things there. There's the waterfall and the Yellowstone Canyon. 
is the Grand Tetons, and just the, the majesty of uh, some of these mountains and the beauty. Uh, this is Zion National Park. It's a beautiful, beautiful national park. Took this picture, Eric and I had climbed uh, to the top of Angel Land, Angel's Landing, picture of the valley below. None of these pictures do it justice. None of it is like what it's like to actually be there, but it gives some idea. Niagara Falls, I think you know, some of you have seen that, and just there's a, just a majesty to it. You can stand there and just look at it, and just the, the volume of water and the, the beauty of this. Uh, this is a Valley of Fire in Nevada, just a cool, cool national park. Eric and I did some, some hiking there, and I, I just love places like this. They look so neat. Uh, this is a Joshua tree, and there's so many places, a cactus field, and uh, just the beauty of uh, God's creation, and the sun hits them just right. Um, of course, the Grand Canyon. And, you know, I had seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. It did not prepare me at all for what it was like. You know, and those of you that have had a chance to, to be there, I, I think everyone says the same thing. Like, nope, I, I didn't expect it to look like, like what it looks like. And now I even look at it, I know what it's like, but the picture doesn't really capture it. And it's kind of a, a last one here. Arches, one of my favorite national parks too in, in Utah. And that arch there is about 52 feet high. It's huge and we hiked up to it and have some pictures of standing below it. It's called the Delicate Arch. And I know some people look at this and say, well, it's erosion and whatever. Um, and yeah, you know, God has his tools and his instruments that he uses. Uh, but, I mean, who looks at a, a painting and says, oh, you know, paintbrush did that. Uh, <laughs> the artist wields the paintbrush and does these things. I just want to say this to you guys. You know, get out there. Get out there and see what God has made. You know, those of you are parents, I just I want to give you permission, okay? I want to, I want to encourage you to do this. And I know you've got to save money for this and that, but, you know, buy your kids' experiences, Get in the car and go travel with your kids and show them God's creation. And don't just go to the man-made places. Okay, go to the places where God's handiwork is on display and point them to the God that made these things. God created this world. We want to look at it and we want to see God. You know, trace our, our eyes up the beam of light to the, to the source and give him the glory for this. So there's things that are mysterious, there's things that are magnificent, and we could multiply examples here, and I hope that you have things in your head that you've seen and that you've appreciated the, the beauty of God's creation, and all these are just from uh, basically America or, well, Canada for the, uh, the uh, Niagara, but man, there's this whole world out there. And our world, our planet is just a tiny little part of it. It's a great part of it. We love it. But man, it is small compared to everything that is out there. Because not only did God create this world, but he created our solar system. He created our galaxy, galactic clusters, and there's a whole gigantic universe uh, that is out there. You know, and we live in an era where we can see so much. You see the biblical writers looking up at the stars and being amazed by what they could see. It's been said that uh, you know, they could, with the naked eye, maybe see about 6,000 stars. I mean, right now, you can go online and you can uh, 
look at these pictures taken by the, the Hubble telescope, you know, the, the new Webb telescope, and th see things that are just amazing and breathtaking. And these are some that downloaded you know, from the internet, uh, high resolution. Uh, we can only see them so much here, but portions of galaxies and just you know, smatterings just of, of millions and billions of stars that we're looking at. I mean, here's another one of a, of a galaxy that's, that's way out there. I mean, literally probably hundreds of, of billions of stars, you know, in this galaxy swirling about. And we, if we can see it, we can barely see it. Some of these, that are out there. God knows they're there. He's waiting for us to, wait till you are able to take a look and see what I have made. And God has placed them there. And he's placed them there with purpose, with reason. And I think part of it is just so that we realize how big and how awesome he is. Because for someone be, to be able to create all of this, that is not a small accomplishment. That is a huge, huge, massive thing. Some of the stuff I've seen just kind of coming out, this um, was just released recently by uh, NASA from their pictures of uh, different types of, these are galaxies, entire galaxies, not just stars, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope um, with all these different um, views and, and different types. Uh, these spiral galaxies, <laughs> there's one in there. Uh, if you look at that, it's like, what's going on? This, one galaxy's having a lot of problems here. It's actually two galaxies here. And these are uh, called the antenna galaxies. It's actually two galaxies that are kind of uh, in, got into a collision with each other. Okay, so they're smashing, they're ripping each other apart. That's not a place you want to live, by the way. And we see there's, there's some good places to live in this vast universe, and there's a lot of places that really wouldn't work out. And this, you know, that's not, uh, that's not a good, not good real estate. You know, if you're living there, you're thinking, this is why we can't have nice things. There was uh, something that was, I just saw this too. This was really recently released. I first saw this this week. But this picture is of the Milky Way, this galaxy that we call home. It's a, a part of it here. And they've released this uh, huge, uh, it took a few years to get all these pictures and to stitch them together. Uh, but what you are looking at here is a picture of 3.32 billion celestial objects. Now, you can't see them, and you're saying, okay, yeah, that's how many stars you're saying are in there. No, this is actually, you can go to the website where they have this. You can zoom in on it. It's too big for anyone to actually download, uh, but they have special viewers, and you can keep zooming in on this, in and in and in, to see the resolution of all the stars that are in this picture. So pay attention to this. Look at the very center, and we're going to zoom in here. I'm using the viewer, so that's why there's the things on the, on the side here. So, okay, now you're seeing there's a bunch of uh, orange and yellow and looks like soup. Uh, what is this here? Maybe pizza. Uh, we keep zooming in, and we're going to see you know, more and more resolution. I'm zooming in on the center here. And we see each of these, it's zooming into more uh, detail with all the stars in all of these, in this massive picture, in the different sections. 
and it just keeps going. And you think, wow, I mean, this is just a small little bit of this picture now. And look at all those stars. I mean, even a little bit, how many stars have you made? A bunch? Several hundred, probably? At least? No? Okay, I see that hand. Okay. <laughs> this is just a tiny little bit. And we're not, we're not even done here. You keep zooming in. And this is where, the, I said literally that picture has that many stars that it is uh, broadcasting to us. There's one more. And look at that. It's a tiny, tiny little bit of that. Ever see one of those ads where it's like the uh, International Star Registry, you know, get your uh, you know, wife a unique gift and name a star after her? Because I'm sure she doesn't want anything that's actually useful. She wants a star named after her. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a, it's a pretty nice racket, I think. To, yeah, we're going to name a star after you out there. You start to wonder, even if it was a real deal thing and like scientists actually cared about it, if you, you know, named you know, the star after yourself or your wife or your kids or whatever, I don't think they actually do. Uh, but you think, oh, man, are we going to run out of stars if we do this? I'll tell you the answer is no. There is uh, no chance of running out of stars if we did this. If you estimate the number of stars in the galaxy, the average galaxy by the amount of galaxies that there are, there's something like 10 sextillion stars. That is a very big number. That is one with 22 zeros after it. I can't wrap my mind around that number. You can't wrap your mind around that number. But that means if there were 8 billion people on this earth, and I think we're approaching that or at that or something like that, and if we said, okay, let's divide up the stars. Let's do this so we can, we can split them and see how many does everyone, is there enough stars for everyone? Yes, there would be. And so even if we split this up and we gave a portion of the stars to every one of the 8 billion people on this world, that would mean that you would be the proud owner and guardian of one and a quarter trillion stars. Just for you. And so you could name them after yourself all day and night. In fact, you could keep doing it. And if you lived 100 years, I did the math on this, if you lived a hundred years, okay, and you named a star one second of your life from your conception until your, your death when you're a hundred, okay, one second, you never sleep, you never take a break, one second, and you do that, at the end of this time, you still will not even have named one percent of the stars that just belong to you. You have named maybe one quarter of one percent of your little share of the stars. There are, it turns out, a lot of stars out there. And they're not little. They're these big, gigantic balls of fire in the sky, many, many, sometimes million times bigger than our planet. And then we think of what we read in Scripture. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. And God is the one that created all of these stars. It's amazing. And we read Genesis, 
and you read it talks about you know creating the the, the sun and the moon and it gets a little more text there because those are the ones that we see even though the moon isn't you know as big as the sun but you know we we see it proportionally in hebrew it's just two little words to talk about the stars Beheth hakokobim it just throws it in there it's not even a complete sentence it's literally just and the stars like it was nothing to him and it was easy he made all of these so god made this and man if there's a god that can make that if there's a god that can do that he is a powerful powerful god not only is he powerful he is wise he is intelligent and he is skilled so the second point the world that God created is precisely designed for human life to exist. Not only is it powerful, because I mean, you can make something, but to make it well is another thing. To have it designed. And we live in a world that is so intricately and so amazingly designed. That I'm going to show you that you don't have to be a Christian to recognize and realize this fact. It is just the truth of it. So I want to look at the design of the planet Earth. Okay, and how it is this uh, uniquely suitable habitat for human life that we have. And we should be amazed and very thankful to be here. Be glad this is your address. And I want to talk about the physical laws of nature. I was wanting to talk about uh, DNA and other things in the design of life. We're going to hold that off because that's enough to be another lesson. But it's amazing. If look at life as well and just things that people didn't even know about, you know, a uh, hundred years ago with... Uh, how the blueprints for our lives are in every cell that we have in our DNA. And people that have looked at it, there's uh, a book by an atheist, a long-time atheist philosopher, that uh, the design in DNA is what made him change his mind and say, yeah, there, there has to be a God. But I want to look at the design of the planet Earth, physical laws of nature, and we're going to see the incredible wisdom and skill of God just on display in a massive, massive way as we look at this. Now, you remember Goldilocks? And you remember uh, how that story goes? Um, and, you know, she's uh, going to, was it, Grandma's house or the wolf? And I, it's been a long time since I've told the Goldilocks thing. But what I remember is there was porridge that was too hot. And there was porridge that was too cold. And there was something that was just right. And in the story, there's, you know, she finds there's a bed that's uh, too uh, big and a bed that's uh, too small and one that's just right. And uh, there in the wolf, I'm getting it all. But this is the whole point. The Goldilocks thing is there's too hot and there's too cold and there's just right. And we live in a world uh, that is this, this Goldilocks world. That there's some things that are too hot and some things that are too cold and we just happen to live in just the right. And it's not just a one out of three chance here that you could pick the right bed. It is minuscule that we are in the right thing. And I, I love reading books about this. I've read books by Christians. I've read lots of books by, by non-Christians about this because they recognize this as well. I have a, a book um, by Paul Davies. Uh, he's not a Christian. Uh, a physicist called the Goldilocks Enigma talks about, man, it really seems like this world is designed specifically for, for life to exist and not just little bacteria, you know, that could maybe survive out there in some asteroid uh, for a little while, but like advanced life, human life, uh, and actually even for just for any life to exist is an amazing thing. 
But yeah, the planet Earth is a rare find. It is uh, very fortunate that you are here. Even in the other uh, planets that are in our solar system, I mean, if you wanting to move, uh, you know, good luck with that, but you're going to die really soon, okay? So whether you say there's eight, you know, planets, or uh, for those of us that Pluto still has a special place in our heart that <laughs> cannot be dislodged, we still include that. But we think of the four closest planets, okay? So we have, we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and then Mars. And this is what they look like in their proportion in size. They're not that close to each other, by the way. Uh, kind of crammed in here. Our screen wasn't wide enough to have it realistic here. Um, but this is the order closest to the sun with Mercury first. Venus there uh, is the closest in size to the Earth. I'm not going to tell you which one. Or you have to guess which one Earth is in case you're wondering. Okay, but Venus is closest to the Earth. You think, well, great, I, I could move there. It looks pretty similar. Well, and it does have a, it has a, a surface, which is a good thing. Some of these other planets do not. Uh, but there's some downsides if you're thinking of relocating there. Uh, the atmosphere is made out of carbon dioxide, and it rains sulfuric acid. So there's that. It's also the surface temperature is a nice 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so you have major, you know, a greenhouse effect going here. All the heat comes in, and it's trapped by this super thick atmosphere. You wouldn't be able to see anything, uh, which I guess it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to have your house have a lot of curb appeal, because I think the atmosphere isn't even transparent. Um, and you'd be dead. Uh, <laughs> so again, lots of downsides to, to Venus. So you're, you're not going to want to move there uh, <laughs> at all. Mercury, that's no good. There's no real atmosphere there. It's crazy hot, even closer to the sun. Uh, Mars, okay, you could go there maybe if you had the right equipment and a, you know, spacesuits and everything, but you, you can't just go there. Uh, the atmosphere, it's a lot smaller, you see. The atmosphere is less than 1% of our atmosphere. You know, so if you appreciate a place with a good atmosphere or, or restaurants with nice atmosphere, um, it doesn't have atmosphere there. The average temperature, about 80 degrees below in Fahrenheit. It doesn't have a global magnetic field, which maybe you're thinking, well, I don't need a global magnetic field. Yeah, you actually do. And that's an awesome thing about planet Earth because we have this molten iron core uh, with, a, well, molten iron with, a, with an, a solid iron core and it spins and it, it creates a force field around our planet so that the, uh, the deadly radiation that's coming off the sun doesn't just microwave you and kill you instantly, okay? And we, it's, it blows me away. We have a planet that God built with a force field generator embedded into it. I mean, give God praise for that. That is an amazing, beautiful thing. You have the other planets out there, they're all gas giants, they're huge. Uh, the atmosphere isn't right, and there's no surface. It just, you know, you go down into the, the clouds and, you know, liquid... Uh, hydrogen and all this, and it, it, it's just not going to work. So the one place you want to be is the planet Earth. But some people say, yeah, okay, I get it, but, you know, there's so many stars out there. We've seen that, and a lot of them have to have planets. So you have that many, and there's got to be, and people will say this, and you'll hear it, there's got to be billions of planets that are out there that are, like, just as good as Earth. And every once in a while, you see stuff on you know, the, the news or reports that say, oh, they discovered a planet, it's just like Earth. 
and they'll have a picture sometimes, and it shows it's blue marble, and it's got oceans. It's like, that's great. Oh, man, they got a good snapshot of that, good zoom lens. Hey, let's go there until you look into it more and you find out, yeah, that's not really like Earth at all. And they don't, that's an artist's rendition of this because they can't really even see these planets. They're detecting their existence by how it makes the star wobble, okay? And if it goes in front of the star, there's a little decrease in brightness. And they can do the math and figure out, it seems like there's a planet there or how many planets. But, you know, when you see those pictures, those are artists' representations. And some of the people, the scientists and the science writers that write about these things, you know, they really, they're convinced life is super easy. As long as there's water, there's got to be life because we know there's nothing special about the Earth. And so all these other planets have to be... Um, and we know there's nothing hard about life coming into existence because it's here and there's nothing special about us. But it's all built on these presuppositions that people have that they're starting with because they start with the idea, well, we know there's no God and he can't be the creator, so how do we get here? And evolution and chance are the only thing that I got going. And so they have to assume that, well, if it happened here, it must be easy and it must have happened everywhere. But you actually look into the details and it is actually really amazing how surprising it is that life is possible actually anywhere. Because even with um, so many stars and everything, there's so many things that have to be right. And we talk about, you know, Goldilocks. They talk about sometimes the, the habitable zone is the, the Goldilocks zone. You know, and so you have our solar system here uh, with the inner planets. Ceres is a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt. And... There's different debates about, you know, where the habitable zone is, where you could have liquid water. Um, some put it out towards, you know, Mars or further. Some have this even tighter. But it's basically this tiny little ring that if you're too close, it's just not going to happen at all. And if you're too far away, yeah, you can't have life there. It's not going to happen either. It's going to be too cold. You see a map like this and... The orbits are to scale, the planets are, are bigger so you can actually see them. But it seems like, well, there's still a pretty good sized donut there. But compare that to the rest of the solar system. So you look at this, and so you see Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And so a habitable zone, again, something like this. Uh, but again, these are the ones that are, that are closest to us. Uh, sometimes we don't realize, but Jupiter is way out there. And Saturn is like twice as far. So if we look at where these are, it's hard to even see on here. And if we had a map of this where the scale was the same and the size of the planets, you wouldn't even be able to see anything because they're so little. So it just it would disappear into the pixels. But way to the left here, you see the, the planets that we just looked at with uh, Earth and Mars. And then below it has, uh, that's where the asteroid belt is. And then you have Jupiter, and twice as far out Saturn, and then way out, you have Uranus and you have Neptune, and Pluto would be further out. Sometimes it crosses because its orbit is kind of weird. So you look at this, and then you realize that that Goldilocks zone is a narrow little strip, and that most of the uh, solar system that we're in is just no chance. It is just not going to happen out there. We're in this tiny little strip where life is even even possible. So that's like one of these factors. But there are so many. I'm going to go through these. We need to live in 
the right kind of galaxy. Not only that, but also the right place in the galaxy. There are all kinds of different types of galaxies that are out there. The spiral ones are pretty. They get all the pictures. Uh, but from what I understand, reading from astronomers, about 5% of galaxies are spiral galaxies. 95% are elliptical or irregular galaxies. And if you are of the mind that uh, life evolved even if that was possible, that's not going to happen in these other types of galaxies because there's too much interference, there's too much uh, you know, collisions, radiation. Uh, it just it wouldn't even work at all. I mean, remember those galaxies where like, the one is ripping the other one apart? Uh, you need a nice like, spiral galaxy. You need to be the right place in that spiral galaxy. If you're real close to the middle where all the stars are, there's too much action going on, too many collisions, uh, too much you know, radiation. It doesn't work to be too far out. You actually don't even want to be on one of the main spirals. The, our sun is located, we're kind of in between these spiral arms which is actually a pretty good place to be, so I'm told. Uh, and so that's where we happen to be. So that, I mean, eliminates, uh, I mean, just billions upon billions of places right off the bat as potential places for life. You need to be orbiting the right type of star. It's got to be the right type of star. It's got to be, you, you want to be in a solar system with one star if you're in one of these I know science fiction shows have the two stars and oh Tatooine a nice place to live it you wouldn't really live there that wouldn't work it wouldn't be good for life um, you also need a star so having zero stars is also a bad thing there are rogue planets out there that are just kind of you know flying through space uh, that's not going to work either and it's got to be the right stage of star, so the right you know, type. There's smaller ones, there's bigger ones, different colors. We need the right distance from the star, and you need a stable orbit. Some of these uh, planets, their orbits you know, go way out in the elliptical, which means you are going to freeze to death or you're going to bake uh, to death at some point. You need a nice kind of round orbit, so it's kind of nice and even. You need the right rotational period. You know, we take it for granted. We go around once a day. Seems to work out pretty good for our schedules, uh, good for the calendar. Uh, but it's also a good thing because some of these planets, some of the ones that you see in the news that they say, oh, discovered this new planet. And almost always when I look into these, they're the wrong type of thing. It really wouldn't work. Most of the planets that they've discovered are what they call hot Jupiters. So it's basically like a, a Jupiter-sized planet, but really close to the star. So you're not going to have life there. You're not going to want to live there because you don't have a surface and you're boiling hot. And some that they find that they say, well, we found some that are in the habitable zone. But you look in these and almost every time it's around some like small star that's really close to it so that it's kind of warm enough. But because they're so close, well, one, you're going to get solar flares that are going to cook you. Uh, but also these planets, because they're so close, they become... Uh, tidal locked, like our moon is. You know, you only see one side of the moon. It always faces Earth. You know, it doesn't spin around like we do. And if you get too close to a star, you get what's called tidal lock to it. So these planets, one side is always facing that star. So one side is going to be cooking, okay, it's always being blasted, and the other side is going to be freezing. So in these news reports, I've seen this over and over where they say, oh, this planet could support life because maybe it has water because maybe it's the right distance. Even if those things were possible and there's so much guesswork, the only place that 
really, it would make sense. Well, they say, well, okay, if one side is always facing the sun and super hot, the other side super cold, but you would have that little tiny line around, you know, the twilight zone here where it'd be in between, and they could have water there on this little narrow strip. So when they say just like earth, it's like, that doesn't sound just like earth to me. You know, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like a step up or even a lateral move to me. Plus, also, that wouldn't work either because the water that evaporates on the hot side would make its way to the cold side, would freeze, and would stay there and be trapped. And so, yeah, uh, good luck. You need a, all these things to be working right. You need the right uh, kind of planet, one that has you know, a surface, not just a gas giant. You need liquid water. You need the right type of atmosphere, oxygen, nitrogen, all in the right ratios, not too much carbon dioxide, uh, not you know, explosive things that are going to you know, blow up your planet. There's, it has to be just right. You know, it doesn't take too much in our atmosphere here for us to die if things are off balance. And so the atmosphere has to be just right. The right albedo, what's that? Like, how much does light reflect off the planet? And how much does it absorb? Because if you reflect too much, you're giving away your heat, and then everything freezes up. But if you're taking too much in, then you get a greenhouse effect. So you have the right amount that's uh, being reflected and that's being retained. Sometimes we don't take that for, um, we don't appreciate that. And we think, hey, God, thank you for our planet's albedo. It's a, it's a good thing. There's more. Right elements. To even have like a simple bacteria, I read takes at least 16 essential elements. Humans require at least 26. And you have to have the right, the right matter that's on these planets and in the right places, distributed, uh, the right combinations, you know, stuff that's not going to, you know, just make all of life poisonous. Other things, a very large moon, I say is actually super important because it, it's a, a bodyguard for us. Same as these other planets, like Jupiter, that take a lot of hits for us, so we're not getting pelted by asteroids all the time. And there's other things with the moon as well, too, with the, the tides and all the interactions that it does. Plate tectonics, most planets don't have this like we do. So they have continents and different things moving around. I mentioned the strong magnetic field, and there's a lot, lot more. So you think of all the things that are required for it. One astronomer, Hugh Ross, lists at least 128 parameters. And when he combines these parameters, he comes up with a probability for a planet to be able to have all these things that are necessary. And that's his short list. He has a longer one. As the chance is one in one with 166 zeros after it. Now, the number of possible planets in the universe is estimated to be like one with 22 zeros behind it. If these estimates are even close to being accurate, and I, I think they really are, that means that we should be amazed that there's even one planet in the whole universe capable of supporting human life, and really any type of life. It's amazing. And God created this world and he and he shaped it for us the last thing i want to talk about because maybe you're thinking, saying to yourself i don't know if um can these be verified and maybe people disagree and but again i've said there's non-christians that have, have noticed these things 
And unless you start with the assumption that earth is just ordinary, because you have to believe that, because we're not special, because obviously life is real easy to come by, um, you're forced to recognize this is a very, very special place that God has placed us in here. But last, and this is amazing, the fine-tuning of the laws of physics. Now, there's going to be things here I don't have my head wrapped around. I am not a physicist. I don't understand what some of these things are. But I, when we get to the end, you're going to see that there, this, there is something to this. And you're going to know that by the way that the, the atheists and the agnostics respond to this. So here's what I mean. There are certain things like uh, you know, in physics whether it's the big physics or the microscopic, you know, physics, things that have to be just the way they are for reality to work, for stars to burn, for the, the galaxies to be in place, for atoms to stick together and instead of exploding. Okay, there's like the nuclear forces that keep our, our atoms together. There's the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and all these different things. Back in 1950, Fred Hoyle, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, astronomer, uh, talked about the, the process which carbon and oxygen are produced in certain ratios in stars. Not a Christian, okay? And he realized that just a 1% change in the strong nuclear force from what it is to something else, 1% change would have a 30 to 1,000-fold impact on the production of oxygen and carbon in stars. So the value that uh, the strong nuclear force, which keeps atoms together, if you change it just like a tiny 1%, it, w it would be a catastrophic thing. And you recognize, wow, it seems like there's some fine-tuning going on here. That's one example. The force of gravity, okay? We think about you know, gravity and what it does for us. It keeps me from flying and hitting my head on the ceiling. Okay, it keeps you in your pews, keeps us down here. Gravity's pretty handy. Uh, how, why is gravity the precise amount that it is? It could be, it could be more, it could be less. And we think, well, if I, if I maybe uh, went on a little more diet, there'd be a little less gravity. Well, okay. And if we we're on a different planet, um, you know, we'd, have, we'd weigh less or more. But actually, the gravity, um, we're not just talking about, you know, your, our weight, depending on mass, but how strong is gravity? Why do we weigh what we weigh here instead of, you know, weighing a thousand times more or less? It's because the force of gravity has a certain strength to it. And scientists have recognized that there's no real reason why it has to be that exact strength. Things would be bad if it wasn't, but why is it that strength and not something else? And this is amazing. If you thought about the force of gravity and all the different possibilities that it could be, and gravity is actually uh, the weakest of the different forces that are out there. If you imagine like a, one of those old-time radio dials, okay? And in this radio dial, uh, it wasn't just you know, across the, the, the America uh, or our solar system, but you had this radio dial that literally went across the known universe, okay? And if, you, and if this radio dial represented all of the theoretical possibilities that the strength of the force of gravity could be, you know, that constant of what it is, okay, 
And this is what it could be because there's the force of gravity to some of the really strong nuclear forces that are out there and all these things in between. And if you divided this radio dial into one inch increments, okay, and if gravity is where it's dialed into right now to make things possible for us, if you moved that one inch over in either direction, it would be absolutely catastrophic. It would, everything would be wrecked. Life would, a small adjustment like that would increase the force of gravity a billion fold. I can't even imagine you know, what that would do. So that's the force of gravity. There's another force that's out there that has a certain constant value to it in the equations and you know, there's different variables, but you have to plug in the actual number that they figure out what it is. There's something called the cosmological constant which is the energy density of empty space. So think about that, like I didn't know empty space had an energy density, I guess it does, uh, but it works with part of Einstein's equations for general relativity, and it could have any value, positive or negative. It could be repulsive, it could be attractive. The actual amount that it has is, is very, very, very small, and they've been able to do experiments. It is fine-tuned to uh, conservatively as one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. That's one followed by 53 zeros. And I read that in a book that it was, I realized, okay, that book's, you know, a little bit old. Let's see what they have today. So I looked at um, Stephen Meyer, his book, uh, Return of the God Hypothesis, 2021. And in there he states that that number, that fine-tuning with one with 53 zeros, is the most conservative e estimate. Uh, he states that the number one with 120 zeros is more frequently cited today as far as how fine-tuned this is. And uh, that physicists at least now commonly agree that the fine-tuning for the cosmological constant is no less than one part in, this is the, kind of the agreement now, uh, the, the kind of average, a one with 90 zeros after it, which is hard to believe how big that is. Because remember, every zero you're multiplying by 10. And that would mean that, I mean, even if it was one with 53, it's been said that'd be like, you know, being way out in space and having a dart and like throwing it like randomly and not only hitting Earth, but hitting the precise, one precise atom on the Earth. If it's one with 90 zeros, your odds would be better if we said, I want you to pick a subatomic particle somewhere in the universe. You know, think of all those stars, how many particles, how many galaxies, and I want you to pick the right subatomic particle. I mean, there's, you know, billions upon billions right in this room. Okay? The number estimated of subatomic particles in the whole universe is one with 80 zeros after it. And so that means your odds would literally be about 10 billion times better to pick one subatomic particle than for this cosmological constant, if you gotta have this, if it's so important, of it just happening to be exactly what is needed for life in our world to exist. And they say there's about 30 of these different things. If you imagine not just one dial, but like 30 that all have to be dialed right. If you went to Mars and you found a 
a dome with a habitat, and all the dials are just set right. Oh, it's like 70 degrees, it's nice humidity, oxygen levels are right, there's all these things. Oh, there's even food. You would say, I think this was designed by someone for human life. And so when you look at this world and you realize this amazing amount of detail, the inference we should have is, yeah, there's someone behind this. There is an intelligence, someone powerful and someone very wise that put this all together. And here's how we know that these things are the real deal. It's by how the atheists and agnostics respond to it. Because they don't say, well, these numbers are wrong. It's actually pretty easy. They, they realize that these numbers are right and the odds are, are super, super small. Let me give you some quotes here. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The number one calculates from the facts seems to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Sir Fred Hoyle, astronomer, he's an atheist. Stephen Hawking, also a, have been a self-proclaimed atheist. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Paul Davies, there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. I mean, these guys are not Christians. We say, well, how can they not be? We see it's not an intellect problem. It's not a lack of facts. It's do you want to believe in God or do you not want to believe in God? The way they get around it, this is one of the ways. They say, well, we shouldn't be that surprised because if it wasn't right, we, we wouldn't be here to even notice. They say it's like if you were in front of a firing squad and they're going to shoot you and you know, ready, aim, fire, and you're still there. Well, you shouldn't be that surprised because, uh, well, if you were dead, you wouldn't be around to know that you're dead. That doesn't make sense. Let's say you're there and you're blindfolded, you're going to be executed, you've got 50 sharpshooters, they all got their rifles aimed at you, you're ready, aim, fire, and then you're still alive. You're not going to think to yourself, wow, what were the odds of that? That's amazing. They all missed. Huh. No, what you are going to naturally think is, wait a second, something happened here. Uh, the, the odds of this are way too small. You are going to assume that somebody interfered that either the order was given at the last second, don't shoot, or it was planned not to shoot you, or somebody rigged the gun saw jam or put blanks in or something like that. You are going to assume that there was uh, someone, an intelligence, that, that designed this so you didn't die. You would not just say, well, I w wouldn't be here to be surprised if it worked out a different way. But here's the other thing. Most way that the, a lot of these scientists get around it is they recognize, wow, yeah, it's really surprising that you know, this, the world has all these right values. And they say, well, there must be like an infinite number of universes out there. That's where the whole multiverse thing comes in. So, I mean, there's a lot of movies with that, and so you got you know, three different versions of Spider-Man running around. And that's all comic books and movies. There's no proof for multiverses at all. The only real reason why that's being proposed is because they realize how unlikely it is for life on this earth. And so the way around that is to say, well, there must be an infinite number of universes out there. And we just, we happen to be in the one where life is possible. 
and maybe there's an infinite number and it doesn't make sense and that would be terrible too if there was infinite number of universes and variations think of all the, the evil and sin and how many holocausts and awful things we live in a world that is designed by god for life god is powerful god is wise if this god is for you who can be against you who would you have to fear and you are wired to know from creation that God is real. The book of Romans tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That the unbelieving heart, we don't want God to be there. We don't want him to interfere with us, so we, we push him off. We deny what we plainly see and say, well, it's a multiverse, or whatever we can to, to not deal with him. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So I got to tell you, if you're listening to this and you haven't turned to God to save you, you are without excuse because one day, you will not be able to say, God, you didn't show me that you were here. You gave me no evidence. Say, I gave you no evidence? Uh, and he wired you to know. And he embedded deep down in your heart the realization that he is there. But we run away from him because of our guilt, because of our sin. We run away from the one that offers us forgiveness, that offers us healing, the one that loves you so much. Quit your running. Realize how much he loves you. God loved you enough that Christ came and died on the cross for your salvation. And he is the only one that can save you. He's the one that can give your life meaning. And if you put yourself in the hand of the God that made all this, you are in the safe hand of a very, very good father. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Thank you for this world that you've created. You are majestic, you are powerful, and you are wise beyond belief. Lord, we stand in awe of you. May we give you glory. May we not worship the created things, but worship the creator of it all. And Lord, in the midst of all this, thank you that each of us, you knew that you loved and that you came to this earth for our salvation, Lord. Thank you for loving us individually, dying on the cross for our sin. Draw us to you. May you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.